You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your copy of God's Word, will you take that and go with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. You'll find some Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can take one now. You can take one on your way out of worship this morning. That's our gift to you. The full text on which today's teaching is based is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. I'm going to invite you to stand, if you're willing and able, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Listen carefully to this reading of God's Word. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In this current series, we are looking at the so-called seven deadly sins, better called the seven capital vices. And each week, we are doing an anatomy of one vice. We're putting it under the microscope, as it were. We're asking questions like, what is this vice exactly? Why is it so harmful? How do I spot it within my own heart and life? And then secondly, we're asking the question, how do our devices awaken these vices within us? Vice lists like this have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Evagrius of Pontus was the first person to put together a a list of capital vices, and he did so in the 4th century. So these vices are nothing new. In fact, they're ancient. What makes our day uniquely challenging is that we have ever-present portals to the seven ancient sins. Everywhere I go, I carry my iPhone with me. That iPhone is a portal to the seven. Seeing that is the first step towards stopping it. So we spend at least a few weeks, a few minutes each week, asking the question, how do our devices awaken incite these sinful behaviors within us? But, because it's not enough to talk about how our devices deform us, we need to also be spiritually formed. We conclude each week by looking at some practices, spiritual practices, that will help counter the vice's power and cultivate us into virtuous people. Help us become the type of people that God has called us to be Christ-like people. Now, thus far in the series, we've talked about four of the vices, vainglory, envy, sloth, and then last week, avarice. Today, we're talking about wrath or anger, and this is the trickiest one of all. It's the trickiest one of all because this is the only one of the seven behaviors 
that we find in God himself. The Bible never talks about God's vainglory. It talks about his glory, but not his vainglory. Certainly the Bible never talks about God's envy or his greed, his lust. Of course not. But the Bible does talk about God's anger, his wrath. And yet the Bible teaches us that God is sinless, viceless. John says that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So, God is angry. God is without sin. This must mean that anger is not always sinful. It's not always a vice. It's not always a virtue. And that's why it's tricky. So let's talk about it. I want us to begin by looking at a passage of Scripture, pretty well known, where Jesus, God in the flesh himself, where Jesus is angry. That's right, angry Jesus. The story occurs in John chapter 11. You'll be familiar with it, but let me set it up for us. Jesus has just found out that a good friend of his named Lazarus is sick, deathly sick. Counterintuitively, Jesus decides to wait Rather than traveling to Lazarus' home, when he receives this news that Lazarus is sick, Jesus waits. He waits for Lazarus to die. From afar, from across the land, when Lazarus takes his last breath, Jesus knows it. And only then does he say to his disciples, My friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now I go to awaken him. And so he travels. When he arrives at Lazarus' home, Lazarus has been dead for four days. They had brought in professional mourners. This is what Jewish people did at the time. Brought in professional mourners to play instruments. Women to weep and wail for the dead. And that was the backdrop for the family of Lazarus, Martha and Mary, the sisters of the deceased. They too are weeping. And when Jesus arrives, Martha comes to him first, then Mary. Mary is weeping uncontrollably. And John, as he records the story, uses this interesting expression... He says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Here he is at the house of death. His friend Lazarus is dead. And Jesus himself is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, English translations almost always soften this. Almost always. They use phrases like he was grieved, he was hurting in his spirit. This first phrase here, deeply moved, it's just one word. In the original text, in extra-biblical Greek, the term can refer to the snorting of horses. When it refers to humans, invariably, it refers to anger. Anger. The second phrase, again, just one word in the Greek text, elsewhere in the Bible, it refers to rough waters, water that has been stirred up. The picture of Jesus here is that he is visibly angry. He's outraged. You can see him shaking. The Son of God is mad. He's mad, but mad at what? He's not mad at the mourners around, the people who are weeping. He's not mad at himself for not getting there earlier. His delay was deliberate. He has a plan in all of this. Jesus is angry at death and the sin that causes it. He's angry at death. And in this story, he does something about Lazarus' death, thereby showing us what he can do for all of us who place our faith in him, 
who believe that he is the resurrection and the life. Now, what I want you to see about this story is the object of Jesus' anger. Jesus is not moved to anger often, but when he is, his anger is never a selfish anger. It's never a selfish anger. He's angry here as Lazarus lies in the tomb. He's not angry when he hangs on the cross. Jesus models the very thing he teaches his disciples. If someone slaps you, turn the other cheek and give them that one too. If someone takes one of your garments, give them another garment. Jesus' anger is never a selfish anger. He's not concerned about the protection of his reputation, his possessions, threaten those things, and righteous anger doesn't burn. Jesus has a different type of anger. Evagrius, remember that 4th century writer that I mentioned earlier? He helps us think through this by asking the question, what is your anger guarding? What is your anger guarding? See, anger always seeks to protect something, something we care about, something we love. Figure out the love that lies at the source of your anger, and you will have taken the first step in determining if yours is a Jesus-like anger. When Jesus is angry, he's angry at death. He's angry at sin, injustice. It's never a selfish anger. Now, that's the first thing I want us to see, the object of Jesus' anger. We now need to think about how can we express our anger in a way that's biblical. We can not only possess a Jesus-like anger, a righteous anger, but we can express it. We can exercise it, but how do we do so? Here are three pieces of instruction, three exhortations that the Bible gives us to help us. The first one, to be angry like Jesus, is to be slow to anger. I've already hinted at that. James says in his letter, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Be slow to anger. He's calling for us to develop gentleness. Gentleness. Gentleness is not the absence of anger. The gentle person has mastered anger rather than being mastered by it. Slow to anger. The gentle person is not the person who is always upset, always quarrelsome, someone cuts you off in traffic, ref makes a bad call in the game, the line at the store is Disney World long and you just snap. We get angry over these little things rather than taking a step back Taking a deep breath and extending grace. Be slow to anger. Secondly, the Bible teaches us to be quick to resolve anger. The passage that I read for us earlier from Ephesians 4, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Do you see how he actually commands anger here and then immediately restricts it? Be angry and do not sin. Or as the NIV translates it, in your anger, do not sin. Anger itself is not sinful. What we do with our anger often is. 
So we must deal with our anger swiftly. Don't hesitate. Deal with it swiftly. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, Paul says. Now, he probably doesn't mean for us, intend for us to interpret this literally. It's not the case that if you happen to be in Alaska in the summertime, you have longer to be angry with someone than anywhere else in the world. Don't get too literal with it. The point here is don't let your anger fester. Don't let your anger fester. Deal with it swiftly. See, anger is combustible. It can so easily become the kindling that starts the fire, that burns down the whole forest, the nearby city, and kills everyone there. Deal with it swiftly. But how? How do we deal with these things that we feel? Well, what do we often do? We often suppress our feelings. We suppress our anger, bury it, bottle it up, conceal, don't feel, right? Other times, we spew everywhere like a volcanic eruption. Neither of these is biblical. Neither will bring healing to the situation. Rather than suppressing our feelings, rather than spewing everywhere, the Bible calls us to speak about our anger speaking to God. Pray it. Pray your anger, even your fierce anger. We see this time and again in the Psalms, especially the imprecatory Psalms, Psalms of anger. The psalmists bring their feelings of fierce anger into the presence of God, and there, in God's presence, they process these feelings. And there in God's presence, their hearts are softened. They're moved to forgiveness. Pray your anger. Take it to God and leave it there. Leave it there. Now, there's one other exhortation that I want us to think about. Be quick to resolve anger, and that means also never seeking revenge. Never seeking revenge. Paul says in Romans 12, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Anger can bring out the worst in us. It can cause us to do things we never would have thought we were capable of. Revenge stories are common in literature and film. One of the best examples, I think, is from the 2015 movie, The Revenant. If you like a good Western, maybe you've seen The Revenant. And I say this is one of the best examples, not because I'm saying that I want you to believe in the message of the movie, but because it's true about how anger and revenge enslaves us. If you don't know the movie, a bit of a spoiler here, it follows a man named Hugh Glass, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. He survives a bear attack, he witnesses the murder of his son, and the man who killed his son leaves him for dead in a grave. And that man who killed his son, his name is Fitzgerald, played by Tom Hardy. The problem, of course, for Fitzgerald is that Leonardo DiCaprio's character is not actually dead. He crawls out of the grave, and because he has so much anger in his heart, because he's set on revenge, he travels across a cruel wilderness doing whatever it takes to find Fitzgerald, to find the man that killed his son and left him for dead, and finally he does, he finds him. And in the very end of the movie, there's a scene 
where Glass, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, has a knife, and he's ready to take Fitzgerald's life, and Fitzgerald says to him, you came all this way for your revenge. Well, I hope you enjoy it. Enjoy it, because nothing will bring back your boy. And in that moment, Glass realizes that Fitzgerald is right. He's exactly right. And so he doesn't kill Fitzgerald. Instead, he sends his body downriver. His half-dead body floats it down the river. It's a symbolic action. He's saying, I'm leaving this matter for someone else to deal with. See, it's not until the very end of the film that he realizes there was nothing he could do to bring true justice to the world. There was nothing he could do that would resurrect his son. His revenge had only enslaved him. It had promised something it could never deliver. Revenge will only enslave us. The path to liberation is prayer. Take your anger to God. Pray it. Process it in His presence and trust Him to bring justice to the world in His way, in His perfect timing. So, in light of all that, let's summarize with a simple definition. And today, a distinction. A distinction between righteous anger and sinful anger or wrath. How are they different? Well, according to the Bible, righteous anger is slow to develop. We've seen that. Quick to forgive. And most notably, righteous anger trusts God for ultimate justice. On the other hand, sinful anger or wrath battles God for jurisdiction. The wrathful person refuses to let God run the universe, instead insisting that he decides what happens to others, especially to those who have wronged him. When God says, vengeance is mine, the wrathful person replies, I'm not waiting for you, God. Vengeance is mine. I'll handle it here and now. That's the difference. It is possible for us to possess and express a Jesus-like anger, a righteous anger. Now, the next question we need to consider, though, is our devices. Do our devices help us express a Jesus-like anger? Or do they incite a sinful anger? I think the latter is much more likely. I want us to use those same three pieces of instruction we just gathered from Scripture to give shape to this second part of the talk. I want us to think about each of these and our devices. Do our devices help us become slow to anger? I would argue absolutely not. That actually, when we live our lives online, we become quick to get angry about what we think we know about other people. And think is a key word there. Let me show you how this works. Chris Bale is a professor at the University of Duke, Duke University where he manages what's called the Polarization Lab. He's devoted his life's work, he's a sociologist, a social scientist, devoted his life's work to studying how social media contributes to political polarization. Bale argues that social media is not what we think it is. He says we tend to think of social media as a mirror, we can get a true reflection of ourselves there, or a window through which we can get a true view of the world. He says it's not either of those things, it's actually a prism 
a prism that distorts both our view of ourselves and our view of the world and the people in it. Think of it like this. If I suddenly got access to all of your social media accounts and I could see everything you've posted, everything, all the posts, all the pictures, all the videos, all of it, would I get a true and complete sense of who you are? Of course not. Of course not, because we're all selective in what we share, in what we post. Bale suggests this little exercise. Take the last dozen things you've posted on whatever your favorite social media platform is. Take your last 12 posts, look at them carefully, and ask these questions. Why did you post those things? Why did you decide to add those things to this ever-growing collection that's now your digital archive? Why those? And perhaps most telling of all, why did you not post other things? What are the things you didn't want to show the world that happened in that same time frame? Do that little exercise and you'll see that you're highly selective in what you share with the world. That means that creeping someone on social media and forming a concrete opinion about them is akin to skimming the table of contents in a book and forming a definite opinion about the book itself. The table of contents gives you general categories of thought, large ideas contained within, sure, but it's not the same as reading the book. Scanning someone's social media content is not the same as getting to know a person. People are complicated. Flesh and blood, face-to-face people, are complicated enough. We often misread each other sitting down looking at each other face-to-face. Social media makes that ability to misread people even greater even greater. We think we know things about people, but we really don't. We don't know them nearly as well as we might think because we're looking through a prism. Here's the way way Bell puts it himself. He says, we use social media platforms as if they were a giant mirror that can help us understand our place within society, but they're more like prisms that bend and refract our social environment, distorting our sense of ourselves and each other. You're not seeing people clearly. My standard piece of counsel when I'm helping someone deal with a difficult person in real life, flesh and blood difficult person, my standard piece of counsel is you only see the deformed tree. Whoever that difficult person is that you're dealing with, you only see the deformed tree. You can't see the lightning that struck it. You only hear those harmful words now. You only see that quarrelsome person now. You're not privy to the storms. You're not privy to the pain that made that person who they are today. So extend some grace. Now here's the challenge with social media. Not only are you not privy to the lightning, you don't even see the tree clearly. It might appear far more deformed than it really is. And you've gotten angry over something that's not even true. Or at least, it's not the full story. It's not the complete picture. You're looking through a prism. So if you live your life online, you're going to get angry about what you think you know about other people. And it might not even be true. Now let's keep going. Secondly, if we live our lives online, will we be quick to resolve anger? I don't think so, because social media is designed to keep us angry 
and to keep us fighting. To keep us fighting. Those within the industry are well aware of this, and they capitalize on it. They know that tension gets people's attention. Conflict-based content is some of the most engaging. They know this, they take advantage of it. In 2020, there was an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal. It's become pretty well-known, rather infamous since then. And it focused on how Facebook executives had downplayed, dismissed research that came to their attention from an internal team about how Facebook was causing people to be more divisive. This article came out, again, it was an internal team that had been appointed to do research on how Facebook was creating certain behaviors and how they might need to address that moving forward. The team that led the research brought a rather blunt report to Facebook executives. Here's a direct quote from the article. Our algorithms exploit the human brain's attraction to divisiveness, straight from their internal team. They bring that to the executives. They go on to say, if we don't make changes, we will continue to create, otherwise contribute to more and more division. At the time, the Facebook executives shelved the research, did nothing about it, business as usual. Why? Because they know that tension gets people's attention. Conflict, anger, fighting, it keeps us hooked. Like when you're driving down the interstate and all of a sudden the traffic goes at a snail's pace. Why? Because of all the people rubbernecking, looking at the collision. It works the same way online. It works the same way online. The conflict, the collision, it keeps us clicking, posting, it keeps us on platform. So if you live your life online, you're not going to be quick to resolve anger because the whole thing is made to keep you angry. Third and finally, what about revenge? If you live your life online, will you trust the Lord to handle things? Or will you seek revenge for yourself? I think we're more prone, if we live online, to seek revenge ourselves in the form of slander. In the form of slander. Harmful, hateful words directed toward others. It's interesting that in that passage, Ephesians 4, that I read earlier, Paul links slander and anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. These behaviors, anger, slander, these things, no place for them in the Christian community, but in the social media community, par for the course. Par for the course. We're conditioned to type before we think, to speak quickly and to speak harshly, never back down from a word war. Live your life online. You will seek revenge in the form of slander. So what should we do? Seeing this is the first step towards stopping it. But now we need to think about some spiritual practices that will help counter sinful anger and develop us into the people God has called us to be, virtuous people. I want to mention three of them in closing. The first two will not sound like spiritual practices, but they are. I'll show you how. The first one, care for your body. Care for your body. God designed us in such a way that we require a rhythm, a rhythm of activity and inactivity, of work and rest, of labor and 
and slumber. But many of us have convinced ourselves that we're the exception to the rule of rest. We don't really need it like everybody else does. We can just keep working. We'll be just fine. No, you won't. God made you in such a way that you require that rhythm of activity and inactivity. If you are quick-tempered, maybe it's because you're slow to rest. People who are under-rested, under-slept, are more irritable, reckless even. Take care of your body. Perhaps it's the case that vainglory and envy and avarice have become your taskmaster, and now you're just the angry slave. I've got to be somebody. I've got to have more than that person over there. I need more money and more possessions, and so I have to keep working. I have to keep working. I can never rest. And you're the angry slave. Take care of your body. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep. Not stay up and pray all night. Sleep. It's the way God made you. Listen to Him. Secondly, read old-fashioned books to help tame the tongue and typing fingers. Let me unpack how this works. What we need is a tool a tool that can retrain our brains to focus on one subject. A tool that can help us think deeply and not immediately share those thoughts far and wide. A book is that tool. An old-fashioned, made of trees, pages that will cut you book. Not a digital book because it's too easy to hop elsewhere. An old-fashioned book. Think about it. When I read a book, what am I doing? I'm listening. I'm listening. Not speaking. Not getting angry. Or even if I am, it's not easy to slander. Because where do I post? Who do I tell? There's no one but me in the book. If you're the type of person who is prone... Be quick to speak, quick to anger. You need practice at slowing down. Reading is the practice. Reading a book is being quick to hear, slow to speak. Books can help us here. Develop the habit of reading them. Third and finally, we must close on this one. When you need to talk about your anger, talk first and talk frequently to God. These first two perhaps seem a little bit lighthearted compared to this one, but this is the one we must close on. I know that some of you have experienced profound hurt. Some of you have shared with me about the hurts of your past. You've been abused. Someone you love dearly has. And you're angry about it. I want you to know this morning that that is a Jesus-like anger. When we encounter things like death, evil, injustice, suffering, it's right to be angry. It's right to be angry. The question is, what will we do 
with our anger. And again, I want to encourage you to pray it. Take those feelings, even your feelings of fierce, fierce anger. Take them into the presence of God. Be honest about what you're feeling. You might as well be honest. God knows your thoughts already. Pour out those feelings in His presence. Trust Him. The imprecatory psalms that I mentioned earlier, where the psalmists are praying their hurt and their anger, they're not plans of personal revenge. They're prayers for divine justice. They're taking their anger to God and leaving it there, trusting that one day He will bring justice to the world. Not just to your individual situation, but to the world. He will bring justice. He will set right everything that is wrong. He will fix everything that is broken. So take your anger there and leave it at the throne. Trust that one day at the return of Christ, God will take care of it all. He will. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are sovereign, in control of all things. We don't always understand how that works, how that plays out. We don't always understand how there can be such suffering in the world. And at the same time, you can be good and powerful, but we know it's what your word teaches, and so we believe it. And we believe that one day when Jesus returns, all suffering will go away forever. Evil will become extinct. Death will be no more. All the wrongs will be set right. When we believe this deeply, we don't have to seek revenge. We can take our anger to you, pray it honestly, and leave it with you. We can send the matter downriver, trusting someone else to handle it. Help us to do that, God. For those of us that have been quick, tempered, help us to slow down. Step back, take a deep breath extend grace for those of us who have unresolved anger in our hearts this morning give us the ability to be honest with you God about that soften our hearts and enable us to forgive as you have forgiven us in your son Jesus Christ in his name we pray amen